need to uh, not make that long walk before I preach again. It'll take a guy like me out of breath. Well, good morning. Welcome to this gathering of North Hills Church. Uh, we are glad that you're here today as we continue our journey through the small but yet powerful book of Jude. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and we hope that you do, and uh, it's been a while since we have uh, made mention of it, but if you do not have a Bible uh, or like a Bible or have someone in your life who needs a Bible, uh, you'll see several pew Bibles around, and those you can feel free to use those this morning or take them uh, to anyone who might need a copy of God's Word. We do love buying new Bibles and replenishing that stock. But this morning, of course, we are in Jude and we'll be here for a, a while. Next week, um, we're going to have the privilege of hearing God's Word preached from Adam Johnson, so very excited about that. Uh, the difficulty of um, following a Sunday that I'm preaching through books like this, we're just not quite for sure where we're going to end up, right, Adam? <laughs> so he's kind of got, he's prepared for a range. And so we'll see this morning, we're starting in verse 3. I believe we'll get through, at least introduce verse 4. Uh, this is just good stuff, and I'm not uh, not going to lie to you. Uh, Jude has just been um, just been really good to study and to walk through, and just very encouraging. All of God's word is good. We acknowledge that all the time. That all of God's word is good for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training a person in righteousness, and we affirm that. But anywhere in Scripture, when you slow down and study it, when you slow down and say, what is God's Word? What does it say? What did it say to those to the original audience? What does it mean to us today? How does it point us to Christ? When you ask the right questions of any text in Scripture, you will always walk away encouraged uh, in some way or the other. And so that has been our case with Jude and hopefully with every text that we walk through on Sunday mornings. And so... Just by way of quick introduction, uh, for those who have not been with us uh, the past uh, few weeks, or those who uh, were not listening, or those who slept since then and say, hey, where are we at in Jude? Uh, we are in the very beginning, the first couple weeks uh, on introduction. There in the official greeting in verses 1 to 2, where we talked about who wrote the book of Jude. Uh, he is one of five Judases in the New Testament that we encounter, and he is, of course, a servant of Jesus, a slave of Jesus Christ. He is a follower of Jesus. He has laid down his life for Christ, um, and he is the brother of James, and also the brother of Jesus, but he is aligning himself there with authority in the church. As we'll see, especially starting next week and walking through uh, the next couple months, he needs uh, a stamp of authority because the, the letter he is writing to the church, both in general and the church specifically, uh, that is receiving this letter originally, uh, it's not an easy letter. It is a letter that he is calling out. We'll see false teachers and false disciples and apostates and all of these who would not hold to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, he has... Um, and he's also, as we'll see this morning, uh, he is giving charges to the church. And so he is aligning himself with the authority of the church through his identity as a disciple of Christ and his identity with James. And, uh, and then he talked last week and kind of where we, uh, we stayed for a while to those who are called and what that looks like and what that means to be the called of God, the, the chosen people of God. And this, the, the beautiful truth that Scripture has, he walked through, through that last week slowly, uh, all that Scripture says, not all, but a lot of what Scripture says of God's people being called uh, by God for God's glory and for our good. And as we'll see again this morning and a couple of times in June, 
uh, what it means to be the beloved of God, the loved of God, and that He is he's keeping us. He is keeping us now. He has kept us for the future, and it will always be His, and nothing will ever change that. And so that's kind of all the greeting kind of brings us up to uh, this morning as we've been walking through this introduction, who Jude is, what he's writing about, who he's writing to. And so we're going to, again, get some insight into the mind of a writer of Scripture a little more uniquely than maybe anyone else in the New Testament, specifically about what he wanted to do versus what he did. But before we read verse 3 and 4, let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity again to gather as your church. Thank you for uh, those who are here this morning, Lord, for our covenant members who uh, have a commitment to your word and to one another and to your glory. Uh, for our friends and guests alike who have joined us this morning, both in person and uh, online. And we just pray that this morning that you would be honored and that you would be glorified and that Christ would be exalted as we work our way through Jude. Thank you for this word that was intended for the original audience and is intended for us as well today and how you can use your word in such a way uh, over so many years, Lord, to, uh, to encourage so many. Uh, throughout the history of the church and for all those who will come after us. Uh, Thank you for your word and the truth that is in it and the encouragement that is in it as well. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So as we go to uh, Jude 3, let us read verse 3 and 4. It says, Beloved, there is that word again, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So you got a lot happening in verse 3, but it's connected to verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, we're continuing in what Jude has written, as we say often, authored by the Holy Spirit, but written by human hands. And so here's Jude in the beginning. He kind of gives a disclaimer. And I, and I can't recall another New Testament writer kind of giving us this insight. He said, I wanted to do something. I wanted to, to write to you. And who is the two? Again, he brings back this word that he used last week, beloved. He calls those beloved, and this is uh, the second of four times that Jude uses this term beloved. And if you were with us last week, we kind of walked through that. It means to be loved. It is those who are loved by God, those who are loved by others. And so we see that Jude is very intentional in reminding the church that they are loved. Reminding them that they are loved and they are beloved. They, they belong to Jesus. They belong to God. And they are loved by Him. They are kept by Him. They are called by Him. And so, and, and it's beautiful as he starts this letter. You know, you can read through Jude. If you just read through 25 verses, you just consume it real quick, you'd prob- probably walk away with it with this somewhat negative connotation, but it's really a positive book. He is affirming the church. He is saying, dear church, who is loved by God, who is loved by me, who is loved by one another, I have a message for you, a reminder for you, as we'll see in a minute. And it's really a positive book in the sense that he is, he is getting to the heart of 
the church. He's getting to the heart of what it means to be loved by God and to follow the Lord and to truly be of Him. He's reminding the church that they are loved. We see this in verse 2. We see it in verse 3. We'll see it again in verse 17 and again in verse 20. So this is a theme through Jude to be loved. That's a reminder that we need today, right? That we are the beloved people of God. That He loves us. He keeps us. He's called us. That we are His. That we love one another. That we should have a deep love for one another. Not just a tolerate liking of each other, right? And that's kind of maybe at best sometimes that we really think about in our life. We know I, I like them, but I don't love or love them, but I don't like them, right? That's a cop out. But we should love each other and enjoy one another as we are part of the church. And so he is just just that first word there to be beloved. It just calls to mind uh, that we are the, the beloved of God. And so is he, but what he wants to write about in this is original intent. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So you know just right there by this, although something's changed, but it says what he wants to write. And I love the, the greeting of Jude, and we just see this beautiful picture of him of, of, of all that he's talked about, even these first couple of verses. And that could have continued. It could have been just this great uh, treatise, if you will, on this common salvation that we have and not common as an ordinary or normal or everyday but this common as in this shared salvation that the people of God have that's what I wanted to write to you about. I wanted to just write a letter that, that glorified God and praise God for the salvation that we share the bond that we have in Christ but I couldn't do that that was my original intent was to write about this common salvation, this salvation that binds us, this, this salvation that brings us together. You can flip over to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to go to Philippians 1 and Galatians chapter 3. Uh, that this love that we have for one another, this commonality that we have for one another. So just a few books over uh, to your left, if you will. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. And then we're going to pick up Philippians chapter 2, 2 and 4, where Paul says to the church of Philippi, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. And this is kind of similar to this thought that we're going to see this morning about contending for the faith in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so we see this picture of unity uh, in the church and unity amongst the bride of Christ. Skip on down to the next chapter, chapter 2, uh, in verse 2. It says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look uh, out to, the, to only his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And we can go to so many places. We'll go to one more. And it's Galatians. Just one book over to the, uh, two books over to the left, I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 3. A couple of verses there. Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. 
is this reminder because it's not just today that we're so divided. You look in our culture, you don't have to look far to, to see all the divisions in our culture, right? It's just everywhere. There's divisions everywhere you look in so many ways. I don't know if you've ever been more divided, but it's not the first time that we've been divided. People are always divided. There's always division. There's always animosity and hostility. We know that Jesus, and we see that in Ephesians, he has broken down the wall of hostility and but you look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, and you just see this reminder, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so we just see this this beautiful picture and this beautiful reminder that we as a church are one. Now, we know that in 2021, the church doesn't seem like anything but one, right? We don't see a unity in the church at large. And there's all kinds of reasons. We'll get into that a little bit this morning and a little bit even as we walk through Jude because we see this dissension and these divisions that slip into the church and unfortunately don't just get snuffed out. Uh, but that unfortunately lead people astray and take people away from the true church down a path that is not uh, adhering to the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that is the Word of God. And so here's this picture of us having this, this common salvation. And just to, uh, to give you a quote of someone that is, I don't know where it's from, to be honest with you, it's uh, unknown, but it says this, All good Christians meet in Christ the... Co- Meet in Christ the common head, are actuated by one and the same Spirit, are guided by one rule, meet here at one throne of grace, and hope shortly to meet in one common inheritance. And so it's just a good reminder for us to know that those who are truly in Christ, those who are part of the bride of Christ, those who are truly in the church, and I say the church, I don't mean everyone who says they're a church, I don't mean every organization and building that says church and a marquee and their front property, but those who are truly gods, those who are truly the bride of Christ, there is a unity and a oneness that we have. And this is what Jude, the servant of Jesus and the brother of James, wanted to write about. And not just wanted to write, but was eager to write. He says, I was eager to write to you about this common salvation. But, he says, something happened. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So he wanted to write about this common salvation, but something else happened. Something happened. Jude got word that something harmful was happening in the house of God. And we're going to see what this looks like as we walk through Jude. We're going to get a glimpse of it this morning. But he couldn't write about this common salvation. He couldn't write about the beauty of, uh, of, of all the things you want to write about. But instead, he had to address a specific issue that was happening in the church. And although he was writing to a specific people, because we see there in verse 4, for certain people, 
And we'll see in a few uh, hints as we go through Jude that he's writing to a specific group. But this isn't just to the group that Jude is writing to. It's to all the churches of the first century. And it's to all the churches of the 21st century if we're not careful. If we don't like what he is, if we don't, if we don't line up with what he is talking about here to contend for the faith, we will also find ourselves not a unified church, but a divided church. So something has happened. Something harmful has happened in the house of God. And this becomes the subject of his letter. And for him, it says, it was necessary. It was necessary that he take the time to write about this issue. To write about the reminder to contend for the faith because there is a need to know what it means to contend for the faith. It was necessary and if I were to put my business hat on for a second, this is a, uh, a subject I love talking about, and especially in the, the, the business realm, what we call the Eisenhower Matrix, just to be all fancy this morning. If you're not familiar with the Eisenhower Matrix, it is the four quadrants of what is important, what is urgent, what is not important, and what is neither an important nor urgent. So there's four things. And so unfortunately, we live most of our life in what? Quadrant four with things that are neither important nor urgent. And where do you find all those things in quadrant four? That's right, your phone, okay? So when you're sitting there flipping through your phone, you're living in quadrant four. You're living amongst things that are probably neither important nor urgent. They're just taking your time and they are a distraction to you, if you will. But in uh, quadrant two, this uh, matrix says there are things that are... um, there are things that are not important, but they are urgent. And so you go from distractions to interruptions. You're doing something, all of a sudden something gets your attention. And those are like notifications on your phone, right? You mind your own business, you don't want to look at your phone, and it starts blowing up. Okay, what's going on? It's urgent. It demands your attention, but it's really not that important. How many notifications on your phone are really that important, right? Not that many. But then he goes into the quadrant two, which are things that are important, but they're not urgent. That's the things we plan for. That's the things we, we sit down and we meditate on, we pray about, we, we plan aspects of our life. They're important, but they're not urgent. They're not beckoning our attention right now. That's where we should live most of our life. But then you have quadrant one that Eisenhower Matrix says, which is the crises quadrant, that it is both important and it is urgent. And this is what kind of, you see the beauty of, the wisdom of this Eisenhower matrix, you really sit even here in the beauty of Scripture. He says it's necessary. I was going to do something. I was going to do something important and planned out. I was going to write to you a quadrant two letter, Jude says. But instead, it's quadrant one now. It is important and urgent. It is necessary that I write to you appealing for you to contend for the faith. And so for Jude, as a... Uh, as those around the apostles, as a brother of Jesus, as, as one charged to write this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, it was clear for him that you write about this issue to contend for the faith, to appeal to the church, he says, to contend for the faith. And we're going to see as you walk through Jude, there are seven commands, if you will, seven charges. There are seven things that, that he tells believers, do this. And this is the first one. We won't see the second one until verse 17, so it's going to be a while. But this first charge that he gives to the church is to contend for the faith. I found it necessary. I found it important. I found it urgent. I found it needed. I could do nothing else but do this. I stopped what I was going to do so that I could write this letter 
to appeal to you. The word there is to urge, to beg, to ask to, to be heard. To appeal to you. To implore you to contend for the faith. And so let's kind of unpack this morning a little bit what it means to contend for the faith. Now, what is the faith? We recently were in, um, took us a while to figure out what books we've gone through recently. <laughs> I think uh, the survey says we finished Habakkuk most recently. And before that, we were in Hebrews. And Hebrews is the book of faith, right? It has the hall of faith. And we spent a long time working through faith. And we realized then that, that faith uh, is used differently in Scripture. And if you remember in Hebrews chapter 11, we said that the faith is, that is in that chapter can be better said the power of God. By the power of God, Moses did this. By the power of God, Abraham did this. We see much in Paul's letters when he talks about faith, he's referring to the salvation that Jesus Christ brings, our faith in Jesus, a saving faith. But faith here and in the book of Timothy that we'll reference a little bit later is a reference to the teachings about Jesus. He's not talking specifically about the power of God that the author of Hebrews uses. He's not specifically talking about salvific faith that we see most of in the New Testament. But here, as contending for the faith is an allusion to the teachings of Jesus Christ, the teachings that are in the church, the teachings that are found in the Word of God. Because that is what he is fighting against. He is fighting against these false teachings, these false teachers, these apostates who are sneaking into the churches, we'll see, who are not teaching and preaching and advocating for the truth, but they're advocating for something that is not the truth. And so he says to contend for the faith. You contend for the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the trusted teachings of the apostles that are becoming known as the Word of God. And the, true, uh, the truth that is found in the Old Testament that was upheld by the church. And so here is this faith, these teachings of Jesus. And for us today, faith, faithful teachings can be summarized by truth that is rooted in the Word of God and held by the historic church. Now, we know that the church doesn't get everything right. We know the historic church doesn't get everything perfectly. If you want to have some good arguments, just talk about what the historic church believes, and you'll find all kinds of opinions and all kinds of things. But, but there are, for the most part, there is a thread that runs through the historic church of things that we call faithful teachings. Uh, a um, modern-day pastor named uh, Jim Shaddix, in one of his books, he writes, this, uh, he writes 12 things that I thought were very helpful so here are the 12 things that Jim Shaddix writes, and he says this, What is the faith that has been delivered? I believe there are 12 non-negotiables to which Scripture and the history of the church give eloquent witness. So these are 12 things that are non-negotiable. These are 12 things that we would say are uh, kind of make up faithful teachings of Christ and the apostles and the Word of God. They are this. Not to spend time on it, but just to list them for you. The inerrancy and infallibility of Holy Scripture. Number two, the full and eternal deity of Christ. Three, the miraculous virgin birth and sinless life of Jesus the Messiah. Number four, the historical creation of man and woman made in God's image. Number five, the sanctity of all life from conception to natural death. Number six, the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. Number seven, the sinfulness of all human persons. Number eight, the substitutionary death of Christ 
for sinners. Number nine, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. Number ten, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we would add for God's glory alone because we find it in Scripture alone. Number eleven, the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus for sinners. And number 12 on this list of 12 non-negotiables is the return of Christ and the assignment of all people either to eternal blessedness in heaven or eternal condemnation in hell. Now, that's a long list. But those are 12, as he says, non-negotiables for what Scripture teaches. These aren't 12 things that the church came together and said, let's make a list of 12 things. These are things that are found in Scripture. Every one of these are rooted in God's Word and affirmed in the historical church. If you find someone who is not affirming one of these 12 things, they are not a part, in my uh, strong, strong belief, of the historic church. They're not a part of the bride of Christ. We often talk here at North Hills about the theological triage. And this is what we call tier one issues. Believing, holding to, and defending these truths are hallmarks of biblical believers. And it's helpful for us to know this. Because before you can contend for the faith, you must first know what the faith is. You must know what truth is. You must know what God's Word says before you can defend it and contend for it. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This word contend, it is a I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word that it's from because y'all laugh at me too easily and too quickly. Um, but the word that we get from it is agonize. We get the word agonize that is at the root of this Greek word contend. And that is to, to fight or to struggle with intense effort. Think about the last thing that you could honestly say you agonize over. That with intense effort that you fought or struggled for, oftentimes, especially in Greek literature, uh, the word was used in either a military or an athletic context. You know, right now, many of you are watching the Olympics, right? Go home, watch the Olympics, and I don't think I've watched five minutes of it this year, maybe five minutes collectively the past 39 years. But some of you love the Olympics, and they're exciting, and they're challenging. And those Olympic athletes, they are agonizing for a goal, right? They have trained diligently, many of them, most of their life. Uh, they have worked so, so diligently. They've worked hard. They have struggled for a specific purpose with intense effort. They have agonized over it. And so when he uses this word, when he says contend, this is not an easy pursuit, Contending for the faith is not easy. It is not a call to be an armchair quarterback. It is not a call to be a social media warrior. To contend for the faith is to diligently, earnestly, and intelligently be able to defend the truth of God's Word. Now, there's an aspect, right, that we could say God doesn't need defending. God is a mighty warrior. Christ is the the, the Lion of Judah. We, We get that and we understand that. But as those in the church... God uses His people. He uses His true born-again believers, His Spirit-filled believers to contend for the faith. And this is Jude's call 
to the church. He said, I found it necessary to write urging you, imploring you to, to struggle earnestly and diligently for the teachings of the Word. To know the truth that you might defend the truth is what Jude is saying. To understand and defend not only what it says, but what it means and how we live in light of that. Because that's what we're going to see in Jude is that there is this, there is this creeping in in the church that many are saying it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. And indeed it does as we desire to conform to the image of Christ. And so we must as believers, we must as believers who contend for the faith, we must desire to understand, to defend, and to know what the Word of God means that we might live in light of it. If you notice here, as we're talking about defending the faith, notice that Jude begins his letter um, as, he, as this letter that addresses false teaching, as this letter that addresses uh, heresies that are, um, that are being brought into the church, that he begins it by, by, calling, um, uh, by calling the church to know what is true. He doesn't just jump into the heresies that are being brought forth. He doesn't just jump into what is false. He says, you must know what is true. Now, many of you have heard this illustration, and I don't even know if it's true, to tell you the truth, but I've said it so many times in my life in ministry, we're going to say it's true. How about that? But they say on the Canadian border, uh, how they teach um, uh, the, the Canadian military, whatever you call them, I'm not for sure, forgive my ignorance, uh, how to spot for counterfeit bills. They don't teach them all the counterfeits out there. They don't say these are all the things that are fake. Instead, they have them study what is true, have them study what is right. And so when they see something that is false, they can spot it. And this is the approach that Jude takes here. He starts with contending for the faith. Know the faith. Know the truth. So that you can uh, contend for it. So that you can defend it. So that you can know what error is. So there is so much error in our world today, right? You take all the error that they had in the first century. You had 2,000 years of that. You get 2,000 more years of error. And more twisting of it, and more just more uh, horrible error, if you will, more things that seem like truth, but it's not. And so, how in the world can we contend for the faith if we just study error upon error upon error upon error? The way that we contend for the truth is to know the truth, and to know God's word, and to be students of God's word. And so that's what Jude starts with. And what kind of faith is he talking about? I love this picture here at the end of verse three, and he says. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. The faith that we contend for is not one that is ever changing with the times and with the culture. It is truth that is set, that is settled, that is written, and that is given to God's people. It is an objective truth, not a subjective truth. It is a truth that is in black and white. It is a truth that we can give our lives to, to understand, so that we might be changed by it, and so that we might contend for it in the church. This faith that was once for all delivered to the saints i love that word delivered because faithful teaching has been delivered meaning it didn't originate with us 
love what my seminary professors will they tell you in seminary guys if you have an original thought you're wrong and you're probably a heretic and so you know real quick okay god's word has been established we don't have to think of new truths we don't have to be creative with it it doesn't need help it doesn't need polish it doesn't need our interjection it just needs our study it needs our faithful study Faithful teaching has been delivered. It didn't originate with us. We belong to a long line of believers who receive the truth. Once and for all, delivered to the saints. Ultimately, God's Word, but also from faithful men and women who have gone before us. Yes, we can go to God's Word inspired by the Holy Spirit and the, the, we can understand it only through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not through our intellectual pursuits. But we should be so grateful that men and women have gone before us who have studied God's Word, who have committed their life to God's Word so that we might know God's Word. Faithful teaching has been delivered. And this is not just delivered from our early church fathers who are so helpful and not just from theologians and pastors who commit their life to studying God's Word and preaching and teaching God's Word. But how about the faithful Word of God that has been delivered from grandparents and parents and others that God has placed in our life, those who care enough about us and about God's Word to deliver it to those in their life. Go with me to 2 Timothy we see a beautiful picture of this if i even knew where second timothy was just keep turning left till you find it second timothy first chapter three through seven paul talking to timothy i thank god whom i serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as i remember you constantly in my prayers night and day as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands where God gave us a spirit not of fear but a power of love and self-control. So we see that this faith is handed down. Now it's, it's not a, it is the faithful teaching I think that is more beneficial for us to say because there is a, there is a tragic misunderstanding especially in our southern baptist southern bible belt culture that because mom and dad went to church and because grandma and grandpa were in church and because my great-grandfather established a church and because all my uncles are deacons and uh, and everybody in my family is in church we we assumed that this faith we received by osmosis and that is one of the greatest lies uh, in the church today so it's not that we pass on our faith, our saving faith, but we pass on faithful teaching. We pass on, a, uh, we pass on uh, appointing our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our family, pointing them to the Lord. Think about how God can use you to change a family tree. Have you ever thought about that? Of your coworkers, of those that God has placed in your life. 
Maybe a long-time friend that you haven't been able to shake, right? You know, he's been your friend or she's been your best friend since kindergarten or first grade, and you would say they probably don't know the Lord. But don't give up. Continue to pour Christ into them. Continue to point them to Jesus. Deliver the faithful teachings of the Lord to those that God has entrusted their relationship to you so that they too might come to know Christ and God may awaken those whom He has called. And that's how God uses the church is is contending and defending and delivering this faithful truth. And let us be reminded and be grateful for all those who have played a role in delivering the faith to us. Now briefly, let's look at verse 4 here. We'll get it started and see where it takes us next week. Verse 4, for certain people. It's kind of got back up to verse 3 there. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. So why is it necessary to write about contending for this faith? It was once delivered for all. It was necessary because of verse 4. It is necessary to write to the church to contend for the faith, to know the faith, to defend the faith, to know truth, because... Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now you would think that if there were those in the church, you would think if there were those here in North Hills, there in First Baptist Jerusalem, you would think those in the church, if you'd say this person is characterized as someone who's appointed for condemnation, they're ungodly, they pervert the grace of God, they're, they're sensual, they're living a life of sin, and they deny Jesus Christ, you would think like we would find them and run them out, right? You would think that we would identify those folks and that the shepherd, as he also leads sheep, what does the shepherd also do besides leading sheep? He shoots wolves, right? And so you think the shepherds would become wolf hunters and would, would run these out. But it says here that they're, they're not blatant. They're not sitting on the back row of pamphlets and saying, let me tell you about this heresy that I've come across. But these certain people, they have crept in unnoticed. And that is a danger in the church. And there's this conversation we've been having as elders as we're kind of working through Jude, walking through Jude. And uh, most, uh, a lot of theologians and commentators will say that Jude is specifically about false teachers. And as we'll see, likely it is, it is aimed at false teachers. But this isn't just false teachers because you don't see the word false teachers in the letter of Jude. So this is false teachers. This is apostates. This is anyone who's in the church, anyone who has crept into the church who is not truly born again, the Holy Spirit of God does not dwell inside of them, and they would desire to lead someone away from the truth of Jesus Christ. This is who he is talking about, of these who have crept into the church. And these are all the things we're going to see in the weeks ahead are what these false converts, these false teachers, these apostates, these sinful these sinners, these unsaved sinners, these ungodly people, these sensual sinners who deny Christ. We're going to see what that looks like and what this message that they are trying to persuade this church in the first century. Go with me real quick to Second Peter. 
just a couple of books over to your left. There are a lot of similarities to uh, Jude and Second Peter. We won't get into uh, to all the, the things about the connection between Jude and Second Peter. We spoke a little bit of it our first week in Jude. Uh, but of the 25 verses in Jude, 19 of those can be found in Second Peter. And so it's helpful often to go to Second Peter. And so in Second Peter chapter 2, the first couple of verses there says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. That sound familiar? Did you hear that three minutes ago? bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Just as Jude says, because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And so we see that Peter and we see that Jude, we see Paul and other places have very strong and clear words for those who would lead God's people astray. And this isn't anything new. He compares them to the false prophets. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21 and 22 to see what a false prophet is and, and, uh, and all the things that made a false prophet. If they were wrong, uh, they, did not, they spoke on their own will, not the will of God. If they let Israel stray, they were a false prophet. If they were prophesying for money, they were a false prophet. Uh, if all the men spoke well of them, they were considered false prophets. That's kind of a bad deal, right, for the good prophets. It's, it's a, a key sign of being a false prophet if everyone likes you. So you're not going to be a good prophet and please all the people. You see this even in Luke chapter 6, verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so these false prophets, synonymous with false teachers, similar to apostates, similar to all of these who would hold to a teaching that is not the word of God and who would take that false teaching and lead others astray. And this is not just a first century issue. This is a 21st century issue as well. There are false teachers in the church today. There are people who slip into good, healthy, biblical churches on a weekly basis who desire not the things of the Lord, but desire their own agenda and desire to drag other people into their false understanding of the Word of God who would deny Christ as Lord who would deny the power of God and would deny the authority of Scripture. We see this in the 21st century as much in the 1st century and every century in between. We see this in the Old Testament. These false leaders, these individuals who would commit heresy. They would secretly, as Peter says, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. And we too should be careful because heresies and false teachers and their followers are amongst us today. And like those in Peter's day and like those in Jude's day, they do not faithfully represent Christ and they slip in to the church, and I would say easier today than ever in the history uh, of the church. They don't have to slip into these doors to present their false teaching. All they have to do is slip in to your phone, to your podcast, to what you're listening to, to the books that you're reading, 
to the things you're reading online, to the articles that, hey, that's a good article. That's a good teaching. And if we're not careful, then quietly that slips into the church are the same false teachers that crept in in Jude's day and in Peter's day. We are surrounded by heresy, false teachers, and their followers. Some are more deceptive than others. And we just put some names on it for a moment. The Catholic Church, thanks to the Reformers, we are keenly aware that the Catholic Church may hold to justification by faith, but not by faith alone. To be justified by, by faith plus, by Jesus plus. Pastors, in quotes, like Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer, believe and teach that because we have the Holy Spirit within us, then we are actually little gods. This is false. This is heretical. T.D. Jakes and the Pentecostal Church believe that God exists in one person and three manifestations, and they reject the Trinity that the church has confessed for 1,600 plus years and that is clear in God's Word. The prosperity gospel, the belief that God promises health and wealth to all believers who have enough faith. This is not a truth of Scripture. This is not a teaching that has been passed down. This is not the faith that has been passed down for those who've gone before us. And even a more modern yet old false teaching that slips into the church that we call Hebrew Roots. A teaching that Christ's death on the cross did not end the Mosaic Covenant, but instead renewed it, expanded its message, and wrote it on the hearts of His true followers. And there are so many others, right? The list goes on and on. So how can you keep up with all this? How can you know what's right and what's wrong? Is to know what's right. So that when you hear something that is not in line with the truth of God's Word, you're able to say, No, sucker. That's found in First Hesitations, chapter 3. To contend for the faith that was once delivered for all. To be careful for certain people have crept in unnoticed. And they were designated for condemnation. They are ungodly people. They have perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's not making this stuff up. He is ascribing those in his time, and he is ascribing those in our time today. And so as we continue in Jude, we'll see what sort of false teaching is creeping into the church. We'll let Adam pick it up from there next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for it this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, that you are our true shepherd. That you are the one who never leaves us and never forsakes us. That you are the one who teaches us how to spot the wolves, to identify them and to deny their power. Thank you for the truth of your word. And may we, as your church, may we desire to know it, to believe it, and contend for it. Lord, as we sing this morning, as we come to your communion table this morning, as we give this morning, even as we leave this place this morning, may we do all of these things not for for our own selves, 
not for any promise or reward, but we do so for your glory. May we be committed wholly to the glory of Christ in all that we say and all that we do. Help us to respond in faith and obedience to you and your word this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.